Shrink Wrap Radio number 795. Money guru Robert Althaus on his hero's journey and never enough-itis. And now it's time for Dr. Dave and Shrink Wrap Radio. Radio, all the psychology you need to know when just enough to make it dangerous, it's all in your head. And now here's your host, Dr. Dave. My guest today is Robert Althaus. He's many things. Among others, he's the founder of the Sacred Wealth Institute, a mindfulness organization that provides coaching, strategies, tools, and techniques to help private clients and businesses embody their full potential. He says, quote, All change starts within. When we change our inner world, our outer world changes. This equally applies to individuals, organizations, and societies, and all of humanity. Close quote. Now, Here's the interview. Robert Althaus, welcome to Shrinkwrap Radio. Wow, thank you, David. I really appreciate it. Thanks for your time. Well, it's great to have you here. And uh, I've been immersed in uh, your book that you've written about never enough-itis right. and, and also your discussion of the hero's journey. And so we'll be getting into all of that. And uh, at, the, at the outset here, I should... Uh, let people know that you've enjoyed uh, incredible material success in your life, uh, but then you were called on your own hero's journey, and that's what we're going to find out about and and be discussing. But let's let's back let's start way back at the beginning. And um, your book's divided in, into uh, three parts. That's right. Uh, yeah. One's called Fairy Tale Stuff. Real life is the second part, and Phoenix Rising. But actually, there's an introduction also where you cover a lot of the important background. So let's start with uh, kind of, you know, you're growing up, who you were as a young man, that kind of thing. And maybe what your plan, what what kind of job you thought you were going to yeah, go yeah. for. No, that's, that's, a, that's a perfect lead-in. Uh, so I actually was born in Holland. I, uh, I grew up in, uh, I was born in the, in the early 1970s, uh, a privileged household, to be honest. Uh, my father was a very successful businessman, CEO, that type of stuff. My mother had her own uh, business as well. Um, my father, though, which put a big stamp on my life, my father was born in 1940, about two months before the uh, So was Germans. I. So was uh, I. Oh, yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and so two months before the Germans invaded um holland and so his early childhood was really colored by that experience he lost his father in the war when he was three and when he was five years old he had his house raided by nazi soldiers 
Oh, so you boy. can imagine that left a big imprint on him. And yeah. then, you know, Holland was devastated after World War II, as mostly as all of Europe was, mostly because the Germans, you know, when they retreated, they really ransacked all these countries and they moved all the the food, all the train stock. I mean, everything was moved back to Germany as the, as the Allied forces were kind of liberating Europe. And so, uh, you know, it took several years for Holland to kind of find its um, its its uh, foundation again. And then the Marshall Plan really accelerated that. But his childhood was really colored by this scarcity, this lack of food, this uh, poverty. His mother was a Montessori teacher, so she didn't make a lot of money. Um, and then he went out, uh, you know, it was drafted in the army as a young man and then went out to um, to make to make his own way in life. And he was very successful at it. But he had very um, deep programming, I call it, you know, life is hard, uh, save for a rainy day. Uh, he was sort of sort of he didn't really pursue his dreams. He always, you know, pursued what he felt was safe in life. And um, and, you know, I later discovered that a lot of that kind of ancestral programming was yeah. passed on and you know he did the best he could uh you know with what the tools he had and what he knew about life and how he probably wanted you to be very careful right absolutely and you know where it really showed up in the early parts you know i was a very uh promising tennis player and around 12 years old i told him like i want to commit to this and uh i said you know i want to um, I want to get a professional coach and be, become part of a tennis program and really yeah. give a go at this. And he's, he kind of laughed at me and he said, that's not a real job. He says, you know, there's no, there's that, 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 that doesn't have good probabilities, right? That's kind of how he fought. He said, just do your school and play a little tennis after school, you know, when you have time left over. And so that was kind of the first dream that sort of got dented. And then, um, I was a really creative guy and I was really interested in construction and architecture and design. And so when I was choosing my university, I was kind of hinting like, you know, I think I want to become an architect. And I remember him saying, he says, don't do that. You know, architects don't make any money, you know, just become a developer or a businessman. So, you know, I, I, he kind of funneled me in that direction. Now, when I was 21, I kind of broke loose from him, I uh, dropped out of school or university, which to his uh, chagrin, he cut me off, uh, which was a blessing because I learned how to, uh, you know, uh, keep my own pants on. Yeah. But I went to Australia to sell yachts and I absolutely loved it. I traveled around. I was free. I was kind of like as far away from him as I could yeah, yeah. because he had a strong presence in my life and a strong influence. And then I uh, I went to the States. I drove a motorbike from the west to the east coast. I've always been a little bit of a rebel. And then I, I did pursue this tennis career for a few years. Um, it was kind of a day late and a dollar short, but I did try it. I ended up living in Indonesia for a year as well. And then in the, in the mid-90s, uh, um, 95, just 96, I ended up in Atlanta just before the Olympics. And I got a job in real estate. I still remember it was about seven bucks an hour. And I started going to night school, which I put myself through night school. And that's really where my work career, my professional career really uh, took off. And I was good at it, um, you know, and I, I was I've always been competitive and, you know, I worked hard at it. Uh, but I was I was I had great help as well because I had some people that saw some talent in me and the, 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 the company owner really um, saw that in me and he nurtured that. And he taught me the business and I became really good. And within a few years, I was making a couple hundred thousand dollars a year. When I left for business school, um, you know, I was I was making very significant money and everybody thought I was crazy. Why are you going to business school? Why are you giving this up? And really, I uh, I wanted to see if I could compete at that level. 
Yeah. You know, an Ivy League MBA it was very prestigious. And I was like, you know, I, I want to see if I'm smart enough for that because I had graduated summa cum laude from Georgia State. But, you know, that's a good program, but that's not Ivy League. Yeah. And, and you, uh, let me insert yeah. that you're a self-described alpha male. And uh, that's that's proven throughout the book. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, uh, After another it's kind of hardwired in and, yeah. um, you know, and, and that can be a very beautiful thing, but you know, an, an, an uncontrolled alpha male can create a lot of havoc in life for himself yeah. and others. Um, you know, so, uh, and that shows up in my life too. Right. And then, um, I came out of Columbia business school, graduated, you know, top 10% of my class. I got recruited by GE and my career there took off very quickly as yeah. well. Uh, And again, you know, this isn't just because I was so brilliant, because a company like GE, especially at that time, had a lot of talent, but you had to be seen by someone that pulled you out of the crowd. And, you know, I happened to meet a mentor again that, you know, saw something in me, gave me the better assignments, the better jobs. And I kind of became, you know, his right hand. And this was an officer of the company. So that gave me a lot of visibility. And from then, my career really, really took off. Uh, yeah, it you know, did. Became, and t- uh, took off is a, is a good metaphor because you end up uh, managing a division that's all about airports and, and the, right, the yeah. leasing, actually, the leasing of airplanes. Yeah, first the leasing of aircraft. Leasing. Uh, this was GCAS, which was the, the largest lessor commercial aircraft in the world. And so I was flying all over the world doing major aircraft deals. And, you know, aircraft are very expensive. They're usually traded in fleets. So we're talking deals that are in the hundreds of, billion, uh, hundreds of millions of dollars or maybe billion dollars. Wow. And so a rounding error you know, can, can be a significant uh, loss if you screw it up. And, um, but I was really good at it. I was good with numbers. I always have been, and I was a good sales guy. And so, you know, they put me on the front end. I, I structured these uh, very complex, you know, cross-border text transactions. And, you know, I just had a knack for it. And I always had a knack with people and selling. So they considered me a rainmaker and those get paid the best because, you know, you, those yeah. are the ones that drive the business. And, That's right. Um, so, you know, I stayed there until the financial crisis hit and the regulators came in because GE was actually indirectly billed out as well when they backstopped the commercial paper markets, which is, you know, your your uh, money paper uh, funds. And, you know, the regulators came in and said, you know, all this stuff that you guys are doing, it's all cowboy stuff, which is totally true. And, uh, and that, that was actually the first you know, demise of G capital, which now has been completely separated and sold over over, um, over several years. But I wound down my unit and then I ended up uh, buying out an orphan asset, as we call it. There was kind of a leftover 50% partnership that we had in this airport development space. And I bought out the 50% from GE. And that's how I got into business for myself. Um, and the first nine or 10 months was actually really complicated. This was 2009, you know, everybody was, uh, real estate was a dirty word. Um, real estate development was like toxic, but we found serendipitously, um, you know, and there are no, no, no flukes in the, in the universe, but we, we ended up landing a deal in Bogota, Colombia. And this was a massive real estate development deal on the airport that was under redevelopment. And uh, that really just turned the whole company around from there, that put me in touch with pension funds and private equity investors, and we ended up expanding all over Latin America, building real estate-related and okay. infrastructure-related. Let, let me interrupt projects. you here because yeah. uh, I want to back you up to what's really a big part of your story is uh, your love story. 
Of course. And, yeah. <laughs> and, and somewhere in, in uh, way back in the story, there was a first marriage that ended in yes. a divorce. Yes. But then the big love yes. came after that. And, uh, and you, yeah, I met her. The story of, is it yeah, so Kara or Kara? How do, how do Kara, you, Kara, yeah. Kara. yeah. So I was uh, about two weeks into this uh, re, re, this program, this executive program in GE. We had this massive central training at Crotonville, which is a beautiful campus, uh, very, very well uh, renowned. And, um, you know, so I sat there and uh, literally she just kind of came. I described it in my book. I still remember it. I remember the dress she wore. She kind of <laughs> came you know, uh, floating down the stairs and it just yeah. captured my attention. Now, uh, she didn't really notice me until about two months later, which I described in my book, uh, but I was fascinated by her and there was something in her energy that just captured my imagination. And, um, you know, I pursued it with a vengeance uh, and eventually got her attention. And then we started dating and we had a beautiful romance, which ultimately, led. she's the mother of my three, three children. We're, we're, we're divorced now, but we're very close. Uh, you know, we're, we have a beautiful co-parenting relationship. And, you know, we just went on spring break with the kids and we still do all the holidays together. So it's um, it's it's not a bitter end to it, but eventually... You know, I through this path that I walked, um, especially post 2015, I wasn't the man anymore that she married. Yeah, and, you, uh, you, and so you describe how you know you started this relationship with great integrity, uh, right. great uh, 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 commitment, yeah. commitment, Devotion. conviction to to really be open, and she was right there to meet you. Yeah. And uh, you uh, you were able to uh, you had to move between several communities during the right. relationship. Uh, but you you were so committed. So one of the th one of the things in the story, I think, is that there's you, your personality, your commitment, etc. Right. But there are also circumstances. Of course, and the circumstances kind of moved your life, you know, with promotions, opportunities, chances yeah. to make big bucks. Right. And in that process, you changed. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Tell us about that and that change. Yeah. Um, you know, I, the best way, and I'm going to tie this back to my father, because, um, you know, really during all that, my whole career, I was really striving to become somebody. Uh -huh. And um, this was kind of, and really what I was seeking was recognition from him, you know, because I was a little bit of a rebel in my childhood and he was very stoic and he didn't really express his feelings very much. And I, more than anything else, I wanted him to be proud of me. And so as he would never express that, even as I would reach these milestones, yeah, um, you know, I always moved the goalposts. So when I would become that somebody, I would just move the goalpost again. So once you make your first hundred thousand dollars, you want to make two hundred thousand dollars, and then five hundred, a million, one million becomes two million, and you know, and those are just the financial parameters. But you know, you have titles, prestige, you know, Columbia Business School, Ivy League education. You know, these were all just, you know, these goals I pursued, thinking that you know, once I achieve those, I will become, I will be somebody. Right. Yeah, and it's ironic because here you're wanting to to win the love of your father to impress him, 
And at the same time, there's probably an aspect of him that you don't want to be. That's sure. yeah. you know, I, whatever, whoever I become, I don't want to be my father. Right, right. Yeah, you sort no, of end up sure. maybe becoming him in a certain way. No, in certain ways, yeah. Certainly during that time, I, uh, you know, in the later parts of my marriage, I became very unexpressed towards her, right, towards Kara. And, um, you know, I, I, I corrupted my soul slowly over this process because as I, I, I just became more and more competitive. I was really a prisoner of my own ambition, yeah. you know, and I couldn't get out of it because I, I just was so driven that I didn't have the capacity to look back and see the damage and debris in the, in my trail. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and, and so I was blind to that because I was just so relentlessly focused on the next big thing. So success and, was almost like a drug. It was absolutely a drug. Yeah. yeah. Power is the greatest aphrodisiac in the world. Power, influence. And, you know, when you measure your self-worth by your net worth, then, you know, that becomes an obsession, right? Yes. Because there's always someone that has a little more. So it's never enough, which is never enough itis, right? Um, right. You know, I love that. Uh, uh, I hadn't run across that phrase, but uh, that's a great word. Never, never enough itis because it captures so much of uh, of the situation that we're in in the world. Really? Right? Yeah, yeah. In, in the world, and I think you know the way, especially here in the West, the you know what we value is what we pursue. And you know what we value in our society, right? Is is money, power, celebrity. Um, you know we, you know, with prestige, social status, and, and growing so we, at all, growing, yeah. growing, bigger, yeah. bigger. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And so it causes both, so both on the human level. You know, we we've kind of become human doing human doings rather than human beings. And you know, on a much larger scale, right? We can see the effects in the world where, you know, we're in complete conflict because compound, you know, infinite compound economic growth is in direct conflict with a finite resourced planet. Uh And so here we're starting to see the boundaries of the biosphere that are really staring us in the face today. Right. And our current level of thinking is really insufficient to resolve the problems that we have. This is what Einstein mentioned. You know, we can't solve the problems with the same level of thinking that created them. And, you know, this was kind of the, you know, the third part of my book, right? There's an intelligence in our heart that is really most men, especially alpha men, are very disconnected from that. And, you know, we see kind of this this masculine-made world out there where we justify and rationalize just about everything. Where when you, if you take a step back and you look at it with, your, with the intelligence of your heart, you look at a war that's going on in Europe and you say, this is complete madness. It, it, it makes no sense that we can still commit these atrocities. It right. makes no sense that we have a billion people that are actually in perpetual starvation in this world when we have enough food to feed the world one and a half times. So something is really fundamentally wrong with our level of thinking and how we see humanity, how we see the world, how we structure our societies. Yes, yeah, I totally agree. Well, I want to get back to your story just a little sure, bit. Sure. And um, so, uh, <clears throat> so you end up uh, 
pulling off kind of a coup of uh, landing a deal as the, as the economy is crashing in this country right. and right. money is drying up right. and you figure out a way to round up enough money to close this deal in Bogota right. with an airport where they want to, um, yes. they just want to have a big airport business. Well, they, 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 there was a new airport concession. The, the airport had just been privatized and, you know, Bogota is actually the largest flower exporter in the world. So they needed uh, a very, very large cargo infrastructure there to uh, um, facilitate that. And they had really dilapidated infrastructure dating back to the 50s and 60s. So this was a massive project. It was over a million square feet. And it's the largest cold storage facility in the Americas uh, on, on any single airport. So this what, was, it, uh, what, was, what is it that they export? Flowers. Flowers. Okay, I sir, I know them for cocaine, but I didn't know them for flowers. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, that's actually uh, they're the largest flower exporter in the world. Yeah. Uh -huh. Okay, I'm sorry, I interrupted you. No, no, no worries. Yeah. And um, and and it was an interesting story, actually. Uh, it was so interwoven, and it it, it kind of shows you some of this intelligence that kind of runs through this universe. So when I was at GE, I actually bought the company I later would buy out on behalf of GE, but before that, we were pursuing another company. And that deal actually kind of created on the one yard line. Now, that company later on had won the concession to build in Bogota, but then when the crisis hit, they failed to close it three times. And, you know, the board of directors of the airport instructed the uh, CFO of the airport to, to find another party to do it. So I remember we were, you know, Thanksgiving that year, 2009, I told my wife, my ex-wife at the time, um, I told her, I said, you know, I don't know if going into this venture is the best idea. I might have to, you know, kind of dust off of my resume because, you know, it, we're just not getting enough deals and not sure this is going to work. A week later, first week of December, I got the call from the CFO, which I knew, and uh, he said, you know, this other company has failed to close it. And um, would you be able to step into this deal? And it requires X and Y. I said, well, financially, I have no idea to do how to do it. Operationally, we could. But I thought we were being used as a stalking horse. So I told him, I kind of bluffed with him. And I said, you know, we're kind of busy. If you're really serious about it, just fly to Austin. And we can talk about it next week. Um, and lo and behold, you know, I remember telling my partner, I said, this is just bullshit. You know, nobody just hands a $120 million deal like this on a silver platter. That doesn't happen. The next week, he sits in our conference room and he invites me to come to Bogota because the deal needs to be closed by February 4th. And, um, and I told him, I said, well, we could do it operationally, but there's no way we can raise $50 million in equity a week and a half before Christmas in 2009 for a deal in Columbia. Like, I, you know, there's no way. And he says, well, you know, there's this private equity party that was really interested in the deal, but they couldn't come to terms with this other developer. And I'll introduce you to them. They might be able to be your investor. And so I fly to Bogota the next week and I stayed there for almost six weeks. Uh, and I closed the deal with the private equity airport and we closed it in the, in the due date. And, you know, I look back at that and it was one of those serendipitous moments which you couldn't even describe. I mean, you wouldn't believe the story unless it happened to you. Um, 
and it's one of those things where the universe is guiding you in a certain way and you know that had to be our deal to be to be done right uh now i do use some skill and effort uh, obviously to get it over the finish line but there's something much larger than us that operates in this universe there's some intelligence that's guiding us on these things and, i believe uh, that as well and I, um, there's a, a nice quote in your book that i actually uh, copied down where you wrote in my experience serendipity shows up by invitation and i was yes. struck by that because i think we tend to think of serendipity as just uh, a magical accident that happens sometimes but i also have had experiences in my life that would tend to go along with what you say here that serendipity shows up by invitation and a lot of people have had the experience of if they're working on a project like writing a book Right. or something like that, all of a sudden the right person shows up or they, mm -hmm. they happen to read something that yeah. fits, you know, that enables their journey. So if you're really applying yourself somewhere. Uh, yeah, and it, it goes beyond applying. Yeah. Um, you know, I've come to realize that there's such a thing as the intelligence of the heart and the heart speaks a different language than the mind. The heart is the intelligence. You read that through feeling, sensing, knowing, and intuiting. And we have 10 years for that because we're not, in our culture, Western culture especially, especially men, we're so disconnected from our heart and our mind is loud. It's very noisy. Yeah. It's very chaotic. And uh -huh. so a lot of times we're just not still enough to actually listen to the cues that show up in our life. And the cues can come in a book, in a magazine, could be a movie you watch, could be anything. The universe is talking to you all day long. Now, we are very inapt because we just don't recognize it, but it's not even recognized in our culture. But our indigenous cultures and Eastern philosophies, you know, this is a much bigger part of their life. And so these are, these are intelligences that we can bring online. And serendipities, you, you do invite them because you have to be open to it. And then you have to recognize it. Yeah. And I think many people whiz by so many different serendipities that pass by, but I just don't see it. Yeah. Okay. I'm going to interrupt you again because you're getting into part three. Of All right. Sorry. Yeah. You, you have yeah. sought and, and gained. Um, so, because I'm kind of grabbed by the real housewives of of bogota or whatever you know, <laughs> yeah aspect yeah. of wow. the story so yeah yeah so you know you end up uh flying back and forth all the time right. which is really yeah. getting harder and harder on your relationship on your marriage mm -hmm. your contact with your wife and your your young kids and, and despite your passion for that relationship and wanting to protect it these opportunities just seem to be coming your way on a silver platter yes and uh also involving more and more risk so yes you know so you as the alpha brave guy <laughs> you decide to take on the big risk yeah and um and then what happens is you well know, let me if you don't mind the yeah, intersection yeah. because i i also think that there's something that showed up in our relationship which other people might recognize from their own you know we started having children during that period and my, my when i met my wife 
You know, she was a, a career woman at GE. We had a lot in common. Our lives were very similar. We were kind of operating both in GE in totally different divisions. But, you know, we, we just had a lot in common. And when she, when our first one was born, she didn't go back. She decided she really wanted to be a, a full-time mom, which is beautiful. But, you know, when someone is with a little kid all day long, and, and you know, here I am in a business world that, you know, it's kind of fierce, it's big money. Um, there's a lot of unsavory stuff that I have to navigate every day. Our worlds were really just kind of becoming very, very distant. And, you know, it was very hard for her to relate what I was really living through. And in some ways, it was hard for me to relate to her problems, which, you know, our own problems are always big, right? So, yeah. you know, but but her problems were like, you know, I ran out of diapers and I'm not, I'm not belittling it. It was just, I couldn't like deal with that. I said, just buy more diapers, you know, it's like, you know, and then, then she, right. and, and it got to the stage where she said, well, you know, I think my car's too small. I said, what kind of car you want? She says, well, I want a minivan. Fine. Buy it. You know, it's like, I was just, you know, and she said, well, I need more help. We only have a part-time nanny. I said, make her full-time. That's you how felt I like solve. money could solve all the problems. Yeah, but what she was really communicating to me is like, you know, I, I need more of you, you mm -hmm. know, and she translated it in these things, these problems she brought to me. And I just figured that, you know, I'll just solve these problems. I just make them go away. I, I, I just pay them off. Right. But that's not what she wanted. Right. What she really wanted is her husband back. Yeah. Because yeah. I was totally you know, even when I was home, I wasn't home. I was home physically, but in my mind, my business never stopped. Yeah. In the weekend I was still doing deals. I still had operational issues to resolve. I was like, you know, so I think what, what really happened is we lost that connection. Yeah. And I think a lot of people might've experienced this as they go into the child phase of their marriage, you know, the roles change and right. even the, it's harder to keep the romance alive because, you know, at the end of the day, you're both tired. Yeah. And, you know, so we had a lot of that showing up and then my business did accelerate and I was, I was swimming with the sharks and I had yes. to become a shark partially because otherwise I would get eaten. Yeah, and these, like I said, in the very big, changed your personality. You became uh, a harder kind of guy. Yes, I was dealing with people that you couldn't have a flank, you couldn't have a weakness because they would exploit it mercilessly. And so I became a shark. And, and you were operating in Colombia. Which uh, all over Latin America, dealing with governments, dealing with uh, private concessions, and you know, business is done a little bit different there. But I, I, I want to caution you though, because I've done business for G all over the world, and you know, there's a lot of big business that um, most of us are not aware of how that really happens, how that really takes place, including government business. There's a beautiful book, uh, The Diaries of an Economic Hitman. It's on my resources page on uh, my website. It will give you a little insight of what really goes on in big business. People have no clue. Mm -hmm. But I was in the middle of that, and it tainted, it tainted my faith in humanity, to tell you the truth. Yeah. Because I couldn't deal with it on a human level, so I just had to harden up. Yeah. And so eventually the uh, – uh, 
sounds like there was political corruption going on uh, around the business that you had created there in Bogota that eventually kind of caused you to crash and burn. Yeah, I mean, there was political. There was also, you know, my partners, I have this expression, which is not very loved in some circles, but, you know, the more expensive the ties and the fancier the shoes, the more you have to be on your guard. Um, because, you know, the devil, the devil sometimes wears fancy suits. Yeah, uh, you actually uh, uh, had, to, had to have an armored car, right? And, uh, yes. and you know, there was the danger that you, as a high-powered executive, you could have been kidnapped and uh, yes. held, held for ransom. Yeah, and I had several, you know, experiences in um, along those lines, which... Um, they they tarnish you. I'll bet. I'll bet. Yeah, and then really what, what you were pointing at, um, you know, towards the end, the last two years or so, three years, it was getting harder and harder to connect with my ex-wife, and I, I the business was 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 thriving financially, but it was a lot of stress, a lot of risk. I had a lot of money tied up in it at this point, and um, you know, I I, I call uh, I went local. And in Latin America, you know, men that kind of circle in the higher echelons of society, um, you know, they don't take it so, um, they don't take their wedding vows all that serious. And so, you know, and, and these, these are the people I was having dinner with every every day of the week when I was there. And so, you know, some became friends and some became just acquaintances. And, you know, you find yourself in strip clubs and bordellos and things like that. And, um, you know, at some point, um, you know, I succumbed to that as well. Uh, yeah. I just, I just got uh, my integrity kind of started falling apart. Uh, my values, my standards. Um, at this point, I was also, you know, I couldn't sleep, so I had sleeping aids, and then I got ulcers, so now I have, you know, anxiety pills and uh, various things, which in Colombia are very easy to get. And uh, and you know, I was kind of numbing myself, um, numbing because I really was struggling with dealing with it all. So let's get to the turnaround point. Um, right. Yeah. What, how'd you turn it all around? What well, was the it, moment it was very of, interesting, of actually. Uh, very, very interesting, actually. So towards the end of 2014 and 2015, um, my private equity partners were actually raising a new fund. And they were a pretty young firm. They had only been around five or six years. And they hadn't had very many exits, as they call it. So investments that have gone full cycle, they invested in it, improved it and sold it. So they needed to sell some stuff in their portfolio. And most of my projects were ripe to sell. Uh, even though the pension funds behind it didn't want to sell it because they wanted the long-term income, but this private equity f uh, fund had an incentive to sell it. And so they started. Um, we started selling these assets and really in about a six, nine month period, uh, this whole portfolio basically was sold. And I got obviously big paydays out of that, but I was done in Latin America. I mean, I had an office with 55 people there and I just folded it up and sold it and, you know, spun it out. So in early in January, 2015 was my final closing. And I remember jumping on this plane back to Miami. And I, I had this kind of realization that I had reached this proverbial mountain peak. You know, I I had 
a lot of money. I had I was flying home to an oceanfront community house, the pretty wife, the three kids, toys, cars, exotic vacations. I I had enough money, maybe not to retire, but it was enough to not do anything for years. And I kind of realized, like, you know, why why am I so empty? Why am I so restless? Like I have everything. Like I I, I have everything I set out to get. And and yet I'm not happy. And that was really this realization that, you know, I've been seeking all my happiness in the outer world successes. And I came to the realization, this is not, I can't find it anymore. There's got to be something else. And that was basically a shift that prompted um, this search in my inner world. And, and, you know, this wasn't like an overnight thing, but in the, in the ensuing months, I just slowly drifted there because I couldn't really get myself motivated to do it again. And, and I started putting pitch decks together and shipping investors and I just didn't care about it anymore. I, I just couldn't do it anymore. I was like, that game had been played. I was done. Uh, in hindsight, I realized now that that was really an awakening moment for me where my hero's journey kind of really kicked into high gear. At the, at the time, I had no clue what was going on. I just felt like shit. Yeah. So you started throwing, you started reading everything you could about the, the inner world and, and spiritual search and uh, reinventing yourself. At some point, you must have discovered the work of uh, Joseph Campbell, right? Because absolutely. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, he was, he was one of the early ones, but I, I read everything the Stoics, I read uh, Taoism, Buddhism. Uh, you know, I, I, I've never really been religious, but I started reading some of Jesus's work. And there's countless others. I mean, all Eckhart Tolle's work. Krishnamurti, I, I, and then I went to workshops, retreats. I, in 2017, I became a certified yoga teacher. Um, I was just pursuing it like I had pursued everything else in my life. Right, right. I, I mean, full throttle. I don't have any other speed. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, as I was delving into this, I had less and less interest because I still had some business interest, but I had less and less focus and interest on that. Because I really wanted to, I wanted to find the answers. And I was unhappy. I, I, I was really, I was in a bad place. I mean, I was, I was just not happy. My marriage was struggling. Um, and I really had, um, I, 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 I had just no purpose. I was aimless. It was hard for you. You finally came to a point, I think, where you sought out psychotherapy. It was hard for you to admit that you needed somebody else's help yeah yeah and and this is a, a an interesting story too because um you know towards the end of my marriage we tried a trial separation and we also uh started some couples therapy and i think on the third session i walked out and i said this is just nonsense this isn't going to go anywhere so i just walked out and never came back and then i got divorced in september early september we decided to get divorced in 2017 and a week later eight days later there was a hurricane that wiped out a business I owned in the Keys. And this is the only business that I've ever done where I had an unlimited personal guarantee. And then the insurance company wouldn't pay out. We couldn't get permits to rebuild initially from the county. And so within a three-month span, literally by Christmas, I was negotiating a divorce and a financial settlement that I didn't even know if I was able to pay it. My balance sheet was wrecked. I had also had to buy a solar business I had on a contract during that period, uh, which was now flailing because I could not spend any time on it. 
So literally just everything fell apart. And um, I realized in that moment, like I, I can't get out of this myself. I need some help. And uh, this is where I called back the, I didn't know where to go. So I called back this therapist where I walked out of really? and, and her name was Marilyn. And I said, Marilyn, I know, I know I walked out of the, you know, the couples therapy, but I'm, I'm, I'm like, I'm in a bad place and I need a little bit of help. Do you know anybody that can help me? And she said, you know, why don't you come in for one session and let me just see where you're at and then I'll make a recommendation. And so I ended up working with her for five months, very intensively, three, four sessions a week. And I fully committed to it again. I do everything full throttle. And uh, she helped me tremendously. I, I, you know, she didn't like um, change my whole life, but she did. She got me out of the worst of the rabbit hole that I was in and allowed me to kind of continue on this hero's journey because I was in a pretty bad place. Uh, And so it was a very important step for me. And, uh, and, and really starting to see some daylight uh, because at my whole life had fallen apart by that time. I mean, yeah. I, was, I, I didn't have the money anymore. I, my businesses were wrecked. Uh, my marriage had fallen apart. I was, was getting divorced. So it was really just this epic fall from grace. Yeah. Well, now, you to, to, to jump way ahead, tell us yeah. about you, you've got a – uh, an institute, I guess, that you've created or a business or something about yeah. sacred wealth, right? Yes, yes. So yes. this is your chance to give a pitch. All right, all right. <laughs> there we go. So so really what evolved from all that, I started writing my book during this. This was self-therapy. That's really where my book started. It wasn't even meant to be a book. And then as I went along, it became uh, very therapeutic and, and, you know, it actually became a decent book. So then I uh, reached out to a publisher and they were very interested in it. And, and I'll tell you why, because I reached out to a couple of publishers and it's not that I'm such a brilliant writer, but they said, you know, we get a hundred of these books a month, but we have never seen it from an alpha male, you know, Ivy League educated businessman mm-hmm. that talks about his feelings in such a raw way. And really it was raw because I I wrote it for me. I didn't write it for anybody else, you know? Uh, And so I was, that kind of piqued my interest. I said, you know, maybe this gives someone else the license to maybe go on the same journey I've been on. And so then it really became a focus, like, you know, maybe I should make publish this book. And then from that, you know, I started talking to people and then some people I started asking me advice, which really led to me forming a coaching business. And there's a couple of um, elements to it. I call it the Sacred Wealth Institute because we are solely uh, measuring our wealth in financial terms. But wealth is a very broad term. Health is wealth, too. Um you know, uh, well-being is health, joy is health. I mean, there's so many different levels of wealth. Yeah. Now, sacred wealth is creating sacred wealth in your life, not just on multi-dimensions, but also in a way that causes no undue harm to others. And, you know, that is something, a path that I believe this world needs to go on. Now, what really was revealed to me in this awakening journey is that, you know, there's an intelligence of the heart which is um, very much offline for most men. They're just not in connection with that. And there's true, there's 40,000 neurons around your heart. I mean, this, the HeartMath Institute has measured this. 
Um, there's actually more data going from your heart to your mind than the other way around. Now, you know, in the in the sacred architecture that we that we are as human beings, this heart is supposed to be master, and the mind is an instrument to the heart. But we got that reversed. We got that inverted, and we see a lot of inversion in this world. So what I do is I guide men predominantly, but high achievers in general that have already succeeded in life, right? But they're not happy. They, they you know, and, and I, I teach them, I guide them to go on this path, this rite of passage of awakening. I activate their intelligence of their heart, which really gives us access to the intelligence of life itself. And now we start showing up in the world in a completely different way. And we start thinking in a very different way. Uh, and so that's really the path that I guide them on. Um, and this is really where we need to go on a global level, because we're not going to solve the problems we have with the reductionist thinking that we see in this world, because everything is in, embedded. And so when a company is just thinking about quarterly earnings and profits, and it doesn't see the relationships it has within the economy, within the industry, within society, within the biosphere that we operate, right? then why we're myopically focused on something, but we're ignoring the fact that we're ruining our biosphere, that there's too many people that are suffering and not really making it in this world. And when you start operating from the intelligence of the heart, you know, you start looking at this from a completely different perspective because you can, you, you can perfectly have worldly success and you can have abundance, but this doesn't have to come with some of this harm and damage that we do everywhere around. And so I, I, I create this bridge with spiritual realization and worldly success. Uh, what is your <clears throat> mission? You, you, I know you've got a mission statement, but yeah. you're aware of these huge problems that we face yeah. right now. Yeah. And, um, and you're a guy with enormous talent, enormous experience. Uh, Appreciate it. been through uh, top level leadership training, you know, in addition to whatever natural leadership qualities you have, how are you going to help get us out of this fix? Well, awake at leadership, which is really what I work on is, uh, you know, and I'll read my mission statement because it's basically inculcate love and truth as the foundation from which all leaders and organizations operate. So we may create a global beehive where all bees have an equal opportunity to flourish while living in balance and harmony with Mother Earth. Now, what, is, what does all that mean? Um, awakened leadership is really people that are connected with their heart. And this heart's intelligence gives us access to a different level of intelligence. So when we look at Einstein's quote again, you know, we can't solve the problems with the same level of thinking that created them or the same level of mind that created them. Right. What it was really pointing at is that there's a much grander intelligence that has a holistic view of things. Right. And that is the intelligence of the heart. And so we have to shift as humanity. We have to shift, you know, who's the master, who's the servant. And the heart is the master. We come up with completely different solutions. Now, there is one aspect that I also do business advisory and that is regenerative capitalism. Our neoclassical economic theory is based on this notion that there can be infinite compound economic growth in a world that has finite resources. And we live basically in a glass bubble here on Earth, right? There's a really thin atmosphere and we have this kind of glass bubble. This is it. Right. 
these are all the water atoms. These are all the air atoms. These are these these. This is what we have. Now, the way humanity has been showing up, especially in the last hundred years, we ignore all these relationships. So when we create pollution, that shows up in our ocean water, that shows up in landfills, that shows up as microparticles of plastic in our food. Like everything has a causal effect. But when we're thinking reductionist way, right, we just make it compartmentalized and we're just like about our bottom line. We just need to make more profits. So the guys on the, 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 the you know, our stock on Wall Street does well. We forget that we are actually all part of this biosphere, right? That is a glass bowl. And nothing can be done in this glass bowl without it having repercussions. Right. So pollution is one example. 800 million people starving every day has huge ripple effects, right? Because now we have to send aid. Now we have to, you know, uh, when there's social unrest and there's wars and revolutions and things like that, now we have to interact with that. And so there's huge ripple effects to all these things we do in the world. And the only way we're going to get out of these problems is to start coming from a different level of thinking. Yeah. So how are you going to get this message to uh, the people, the places? I mean, it seems like such an almost impossible task to turn this around. And well, nothing is impossible. Because okay. it's just, where are, well, there's where, a couple things, right? Where are the First levers? All, yeah, well, I'll tell you what the levers are. First of all, you know, Malcolm's um, Blackwell's book, The Tipping Point? Yeah. All right. So we know we don't need to change 50, 60, 70 percent of the people. We need about 17 to 19 percent of people to have this insight. And the whole world will shift. Right. So that's infinitely more doable than, you know, having to convince 80% of the population. Yeah. The second part is I work with high achievers. I work with people in, in places of power and influence specifically, right? Now, when I work with a CEO that has a company with 20,000 employees, with thousands of customers, right? When, he, when we want to change a company, we have to change leadership. When we want to change leadership, you have to change the leader. Now, for the leader to change, he has to have the courage to change within. Because the outside world is just a reflection of our prevailing beliefs and theories about life. And so if I can change and work with one CEO that has such an impact on this world, I don't need to work with too many CEOs to have quite a bit of impact. Now, this is much more powerful than me running for politics and trying to convince, you know, someone to vote on me or whatever. Okay. And not that I have any aspirations to go into politics. So I work with these people that have typically a significant amount of influence, reach, resources. Mm -hmm. When they change on the inside, when they start accessing this intelligence, when they start coming from love and compassion, where there's deep wisdom in love and compassion, actually, um, they start changing their companies. They start changing their relationships. They start changing how they show up in life. Now, when you start changing 20,000 people, right? And I'll assume that everybody has a family that they go home to. And now they start raising their kids and they talk to their husband or wife or their friends. 
the ripple effect of these things is absolutely exponential. Now, if you know anything about exponential math, is that it, it goes very, very, very quick yeah. as soon as you're two or three layers in, right? Yeah. The, the first one or two, you're like, oh, it's just a few, a handful. But you do exponential math on 20, 30,000 people, you're in the hundreds of millions of people that you touch. And this is exactly how this type of work and this type of message is going to take hold because we cannot solve our current problems in society or this world with the current level of thinking. We're, we're not going to resolve it. We just keep moving the deck chairs on the Titanic around. Right, right, right. So, um, how are you going to avoid <laughs> how are you going to avoid hubris and within me or someone yeah else? yeah within you well you know one, one of the things of going through this hero's journey right and ram das expressed this in a very beautiful way um, if you truly go through it, um, you get to this place where you're perfectly happy being nobody. I don't have to become somebody anymore. I'm already complete. And all I want to do is I want to work on those things that I think are meaningful, that I think will help this world, humanity. I have three kids. I'd like them to inherit a different world. I don't want them to grow up in a Mad Max movie. And so these are the things that drive me. Um, yeah. But I don't have to become anybody anymore. I'm perfectly okay being nobody. I'm perfectly okay if I have five followers on Instagram and, you know, uh, and if I have 100,000, that's great. Um, so, you know, hubris is really something of the ego. And I'm not saying I don't have an ego because you can't kill your ego because if you kill your ego, you're dead. Um, but my ego is very well... Uh, in check because I, you know, my egoic mind doesn't drive the bus anymore. And I have various practices that I do daily to keep that in check, by the way. I'm not yeah. saying that this is like a permanent state that you achieve. This is something you work on daily. Yeah. Yeah. I think we saw a uh, kind of an object lesson in the, in the Oscars. Did you, are you aware of the Oscar slap and Wilson? Yeah, I'm, a, I'm aware of it. Yes, yeah. Yes, yes. And, um, and he said something in his speech. I've got it written down here somewhere. I hope I can find it. I can't believe that I can't find it. Well, I'll, I'll share something. On, oh, here, on, on, here it is. Oh, okay. Here it is. Right. I was struck by, he actually quotes Denzel Washington spoke mm. to him earlier that evening. And in his speech, he says, he told me a few minutes ago, at your highest moment, be careful. That's when the devil comes to you. And I thought that was a powerful kind of Jungian statement um, that, you know, about the opposites. Yeah, although, if, if you allow me, um, we've come to a place in, in, in time where nothing you see in mainstream media is really what it is. And um, 
you know, there's a narrative being spun, and it's it, and that's even that's even in in the Ukraine today. I mean, I'll, I'll talk about that for just a second. As obviously atrocities happening on the human level. Um, in no way am I condoning what Putin is doing. Uh, he's a he, he's a monster, and has demonstrated that for decades. Um, but the West isn't exactly innocent here. It's they, these things are so complex; they're not black and white. And so when you look at Western media. There's this black and white story. Zelensky is the hero and Putin is the villain. And we do that because we like to think that way, because it's easy. But life is not that easy. I mean, these geopolitical situations are very complex. There's histories to it. Sure. Right? And I won't delve into Ukraine. Now, the Oscars, I, I have to be honest with you, that to me, this was all staged. There's too many things that don't end up, including the fact that he was first laughing his ass off and then moments later has this slap. He walks back to his seat. His wife is laughing, actually. Um, He wasn't expelled from the Oscars. That's an act of violence. It's very rare that that happened. And then the Oscars have had sinking ratings. And this, you know, and everybody that was texting and tweeting they got God knows $100 million worth of free publicity right. in the days following this, right? And now we milk this for for weeks. We're talking about it. And then, you know, we have all, all these side discussions. Well, if he would have been a white man hitting a black man, then it would have been this. And so we're all going in all these rabbit holes. Yeah. And the reality is we're being distracted. I, I buy that, yeah. We're yeah. being distracted. Right by, quite frankly, a media uh, apparatus that is feeding us a narrative, whichever way they want us to think, go, or, or act. And we have to go beyond this. There's no free press anymore, right? Don't talk about the slap. Talk about the fact that there's censorship. Talk about the fact that there's very, there's, you know, censorship even on the social media channels. Right. Talk about the fact that there's many things being done in very questionable ways. Yeah. There's laptops disappearing. There's, you know, uh, vaccine trial data that is not being shared and we have to sue someone. Right. So it gets released to the public instead of 75 years from now. So we can start seeing it now. Um, There's so many different things that we are not seeing the truth. This is why I say love and truth. We are no longer living in a world of truth. And we have to go beyond that. Now, there's channels and ways to do that. But I generally believe that this was uh, an entertainment event. And this was all staged. And we are all talking about it. Because what they really don't want us to look at is the fact that we've been printing $6 trillion. And that you know 60% of our cash in circulation has been printed in the last 18 months. We're fast on our way to becoming Venezuela. You know, they don't want us to look at the fact that our financial market are being propped up with this free printed money. They don't want to look at the fact that we sell weapons that are being used in many revolutions and many wars around the world that we don't want to have our hands on. Yeah, yeah. So there's there's many things um, happening in this world behind this kind of veil of what supposedly is the news. Yeah. And um I think that is the mo- one of the most dangerous things. There was a freedom convoy in Canada, and we didn't see it on TV here. 
This was 50,000 truckers went to the to capital in Ottawa, right? This was a major event in the country north of us. We don't see any of it, right? And and I can I can keep going. Yeah. So this is very selective news. <laughs> We're running out of time. Yeah, now. yeah, yeah. So I, I honestly, I don't really want to feed it by, you know, analyzing what Will did. Because I think it was completely staged. This is entertainment. We're being distracted. The, the, part, much, that, the part that grabbed me is, you know, this is the Denzel Washington quote. Uh, so. No, I, and, and okay. So, so to respond to that, yes, as we um, ascend the, 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 the ladder of worldly success, what we're being asked to do is deepen our integrity every, every step of the way. Yeah. Because everything is temptation. And, you know, power, money, um, even for men, women, uh, you know, these, um, these are very seductive forces that if we don't stand very grounded in who we are and what we are and what we stand for, yeah. uh, these things are very easy to sway us, uh, especially when you start having people that idolize you. Well, that's a good place for us to wrap it up, I think. Right, thank you. Yeah. Sorry to put it on such an area, a serious <laughs> note at the end. but That's okay. You know. I opened it up. Yeah, hey, yeah, yeah. Hey, um, Robert Althaus, I really want to thank you for being my guest today on Shrinkwrap Radio. I have to confess, I began the book, Never Enough-itis, a story of success, emptiness, and overcoming myself, with a bit of skepticism. The author, of course, is today's guest, Robert Althaus. By the time I finished the book, however, he had turned me around. I actually shared this with him before turning the recorder on for our, our interview. He was curious about my initial skepticism. I let him know that after so many years of reviewing self-help books, I've become a bit jaded by their claims of easy enlightenment and total life transformation. And I've actually interviewed other entrepreneurs on this show who did well in the corporate world or their own startup and then became spiritual seekers with profound insights. You might be wondering then why I agreed to interview Robert. Well, he mentioned that he had also written a book on the hero's journey. That was the hook for me. Longtime listeners know I have a keen interest in all things Jungian and for years taught university courses in both California and New Hampshire in which Joseph Campbell's The Hero with a Thousand Faces was a required text. And Certainly, I thought, in many ways, it provided a template for understanding my own life. While it's true I've interviewed other guests who acquired significant success and wealth, I'm pretty sure Robert, a self-described alpha male, tops them all on the material success meter. Of course, Robert would be the first to rush in here to decry material wealth as a relevant metric. Indeed, the whole point of his story is to share how wealth failed to satisfy his soul. 
Reading his book, I have to confess I really got caught up in the story of his meteoric rise. It's so well written that it grabbed me the way good crime novels do, a guilty pleasure in which I eagerly turn the pages to see what happens next. It's also a cautionary tale for any out there who also might be chasing wealth on a job treadmill. I'm struck by the way Robert starts out as an unusually bright and energetic guy who gets a good job at General Electric and early on gets recognized as a real comer. And so he's earmarked for special training and plum, but challenging assignments with great follow-on opportunities if successful. He starts out as a very sincere, passionate young guy, a very competitive guy, but not evil. The thing that really stands out for me is the way his life and virtue to some degree are co-opted by a succession of difficult challenges with more and more rewards. I can't help but think of a rat in a maze or on a treadmill. As Robert writes, quote, some of the burden was entirely self-imposed. A prisoner of my own ambition, I always strove harder than I was asked to, always pushed for more and better when everyone else had long been satisfied. The relentless drive and insatiable need to prove my worth that got me ahead eventually became the thing that brought me down. Close quote. His journey is also a tragic love story. He meets a beautiful trainee at GE. She's also gifted in pursuing her own separate corporate career at GE. Robert, having had an earlier brief marriage, is particularly careful in wooing her to move slowly, not to overwhelm her, and to communicate openly. He's careful to get the permission of her parents, wisely courting them as much as her. He's inventive in his proposal. They marry, they start having kids, she decides to quit her career at GE. Nobody has bad intentions here, but his successes at work mean more and more travel, enticing opportunities, and less and less family time. Eventually it all comes crashing down. As Robert puts it, quote, And so, ever so gradually, our lives, which had been so intertwined on so many levels, started to diverge. It was a long time before we recognized these apparently innocuous and perfectly natural changes. But like running water carves a canyon over time, the eroding forces in our relationship were undeniably set in motion. As my work and career became more serious, a certain gravity seeped into my being. Life simply wasn't as carefree anymore, and although I didn't fully appreciate it at the time, I now understand how the pressure to produce started to have its effect on me. The happy-go-lucky Robert became more staid, reserved, and withdrawn, and the direct exposure to the underbelly of big business left me increasingly jaded. I became tougher, more cynical, more calculated, and more cold-blooded 
as those were the traits I needed to succeed in the world of big business and high finance. Looking back, I have no doubt that Kara found this Robert harder to connect with, not on purpose, not by design, but by mere circumstances. Close quote. I've got to stop myself from recounting his story because he does a better job of it in the book, which I encourage you to read for yourself. Robert shared with me that he did not start out to write a publishable book. It began as a kind of journaling exercise, but quickly became a very healing form of self-therapy. He thinks it might be so for readers. I've stopped myself from recounting his exceptionally well-told story, but I will tell you that in true alpha male style, he threw himself into reading a boatload of spiritual texts, self-help books, personal growth workshops, and eventually psychotherapy. His is truly a hero's journey, and now he's in the process of bringing his boon back to the world in a big way. You can find out more about that by going to his Sacred Wealth Institute website at robertalthouse.com. And I have to tell you, Althouse is spelled A-L-T-H-U-I-S. Hi, Dr. Dave. This is Andrea Nuss, and I made a donation because I support Shrink Wrap Radio. I feel I stay on the cutting edge of all things therapy, and I gained a lot of insight on my own way of being. It's been an incredible resource to me in my still young career. Thank you, Dr. Dave, and your guests for providing such an engaging platform of information. Thank you, alternative therapist practitioner Andrea Nuss. I feel very affirmed in creating a platform for people like you. Your support helps to keep the show online. So now it's time to shrink wrap it up once again. Thanks to today's financial guru, Robert Althaus, for discussing his own awakening to the lessons of the hero's journey and what he calls never enough-itis. Next week, my guest will be psychotherapist Michael Rucker, and we'll be discussing his work and his new book, The Fun Habit, How the Disciplined Pursuit of Joy and Wonder Can Change Your Life. So until then, this is Dr. Dave reminding you to be kind to yourselves and others. You've been shrink-wrapped by Dr. Dave. All the psychology you need to know, and just enough to make you dangerous.